Wherefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just, and good. And Christ is its telos, its end. These words of Paul from Romans are arguably among the most fertile in the New Testament. And their engagement continues to spur some of the most creative theological endeavor in the church. To which, of course, we might also add Jesus' own words. That is, that he came not to abolish the law, but to make it full. Now, we're used to thinking of Luther's stark opposition between law and gospel, which, after all, he took up from Paul, and thinking of it as definitive of the Reformation's initiating energies. The gospel gives freely, Luther wrote, but the law exacts from us impossible things. But in fact, Protestants, and Luther included in his own way, sought continually to bridge this simple opposition by seeing how the law was lodged within grace. And from their side over the past few centuries, Catholics have done the same seeing how grace is lodged within the law. And you would think that by 2017 there would have been some kind of common ground found here, and there has been, to some degree, among theologians. But philosophical liberalism has culturally triumphed in our midst, and that philosophy insists that religion itself is a form of deadly legalism. So the opposition between law and gospel itself is now part of our inescapable social baggage. We're all weighed down by it. And we should be very, very careful. Yet as I said, the Reformation's vital tradition has always engaged in figuring out how the law might be lodged within divine grace itself. And every Protestant church has pursued this question in its own way. And so the Decalogue, that is the Ten Words of God, the Ten Commandments which we've just heard read, they were at the heart of this common pursuit by Protestants. And the Decalogue is thus a central Reformation scriptural text. It is in fact a key part of every single Reformation catechism, Lutheran, Calvinist, and so on. Though to be sure, it's also a part of every Catholic catechism as well. That is to say, every Christian until recently, of any tradition, was taught at the, as the foundation of their faith, the Decalogue, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Every one. And more than any text from Romans or Galatians, Protestant Christians knew the Ten Commandments. It was part of the baptismal covenant for every single one. Now there are, of course, differences among the churches in how they engaged the Decalogue foundationally, and perhaps the most integrated approach was that of the English Reformation, with Thomas Cranmer in the lead. When Cranmer finally had a free hand to revise the English liturgy in the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, he added the Decalogue to the communion service, we all said it last night if you were here. But you should realize it was a unique innovation. 
Although the German-French reformer Martin Bucer may have suggested this to Cranmer, no other reform liturgy followed suit. And nobody quite knows why Cranmer did it. Yet there it is, still in our present-day communion service right after the opening collect. The priest, we are told, facing the people who are kneeling, says, hear the law of God which was given to Israel in old time. God spake these words and said. And then the priest rehearses each commandment. And after each commandment is spoken, the people say, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. And finally, after the last commandment is proclaimed, that is, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his servant, nor his maid, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is his, the people pray, Lord, have mercy upon us and write all these thy laws in our hearts, we beseech thee. This, too, is the Reformation. And there are at least four key things I would like to say about the particularly reformational meaning of this practice. First, coming at the beginning of worship in the Book of Common Prayer, most commentators viewed the rehearsal of the Decalogue as a necessary presentation of the holiness and awesome sovereignty of God the Creator before whom our lives are given over in Christ. Lord, have mercy upon us, we say, with the clear sense that we can approach God only through his forgiveness of our violation of his sanctity and creative will. And to do this, we need, and we have need, for the very life of God at work in us. Incline our hearts to keep this law. We cry out in yearning and submission. The 18th century divine Charles Wheatley speaks in commenting on this of the priest standing and proclaiming the laws, not in his own person, but as the voice of God speaking through Moses again from the mountain before a great calling and future that lies before Israel and of course now before the gathered Christian congregation. We are through the Decalogue, being readied for a tremendous journey. Secondly, the people pray at the end of the Decalogue's pronouncement, write all these thy laws in our hearts. And the move here is twofold. First, God is at work personally in offering these commands to us. In a sense, they are the gift of God, even in Luther's sense. Write them for us, we ask. Give them to us, we pray. Exodus 31, 18 tells us that the tablets of the law were inscribed by the very finger of God. A detail we often forget. This is a mark of the incredible condescension and divine involvement of God in our lives. No wonder that the giving of the Torah was viewed by Jews often in a manner very similar to Philippians 2. The giving of the law is God coming down and dwelling among us. But if so, how? And the answer, of course, is in Christ. The law is always given in Christ, who is personally the Mount Sinai 
in its revelatory gifts. Hence, the prayer that the people make, write all these thy laws in our hearts, is a clear reference to the first Reformation text we heard preached on by Dr. Mangina a bit ago, Jeremiah 31, 31. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Anglicans were clear that the commandments were themselves re-given to us as a divine vocation by Jesus himself. You remember the story, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, he says, to the inquirer after salvation in Matthew 19.17. But more than that, they were given in Christ, in his spirit, working among us, inscribing them, fulfilling them, moving us to keep them day by day. And finally, the us here is important, as in the words of Jeremiah, I will be their God and they will be my people. The Decalogue is a corporate or communal gift. If given in Christ and in his spirit, the law here takes its form in the body of Christ, that is to say in the church, directly. The law is the grace of the body. The law is the grace of the body. It is the humbling gift of a God, awesomely sovereign and holy, who has made us to grant life to Adam, the human being, the human race, now taken up in Christ as his church. And although Luther's law-gospel tension or even conflict shaped the thinking of certain early English reformers, in fact, a deeper English tradition soon asserted itself anew in the 16th century. That is to say, there is grace in the law. Grace is always fundamental and justification is given by grace, yes, but the law itself is a gift. And it is a powerful gift when embraced in Christ Jesus. How exactly? On the one hand, by his accompaniment with us in our obedience, even his fulfillment of it for our incapable hearts. And on the other, this leading by Christ finds its palpable fulfillment in terms of corporate love. That is, the ordering of a social body in mutual service. This sense that in the Decalogue we are shown how God and neighbor are properly served by the grace of Christ is a peculiarly English Protestant sentiment. That is, we are Christians only insofar as we are reborn in service of a commonwealth. And that commonwealth is truthful and good only insofar as it is centered on God's life. We pray the Decalogue because divine grace comes to us always in the form of an ordered social life of mutual charity. There's no love without such order. And there is no ordered social life, human life that is, without such charity. And I think this is a terribly important set of challenges to so many contemporary assumptions. Thou shalt have none other gods but me. Thou shalt not bow down to them. I am a jealous God. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Keep holy the Sabbath day on which I rested from creation. Honor thy mother and father. Thou shalt do no murder, nor adultery, nor stealing, nor false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. All of these 
actually sum up some of the great Reformation commitments, once so dear, though now so mostly forgotten. That is to say, God's life above all else, against all self-centeredness, idolatry, blasphemy, distraction. The incredibly intense and focused Protestant concerns with God's holiness, with prayer, with the dedicated reading of scripture, with an ordered life given over to the purity of God's spirit. And then, of course, the deep commitment to the order of a common life, to family, to parents, to the restraint of violence, to material modesty, even generosity, to the protection of the weak, the poor, women, children, to the absolute demand of integrity of demeanor and communication. To receive this, to be empowered in its embrace, to know the mercy of God in Christ in pursuing its ordering energies, this is all pure gift. It is pure grace. And much of it, so much of it has disappeared in our modern world with its competitive and individual self-assertions and identity groupings. It has disappeared even in many of our churches, I'm afraid, where frankly the same competitive self-assertions prevail and where law and grace are pitted against each other in a, uh, in a, a false, a lying zero-sum game. By contrast, the Decalogue stands as it has always stood as a great antidote to this quite natural slide into the abrasive forms of naturalism itself. The reformers deserve our attention for recognizing this gift, one we should receive with ever-renewed thanksgiving and performance. God spake these words and said, and Christ went on to say, do these, sell your goods, and then come follow. In his name, amen.